I, I, I knew Rob Porter in college, so he is officially not old. <laughs> really good ping pong player. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We're here with Dara Lind and great Andrew Prokop joining us today. Uh, we we want to talk about um, we want to talk about Rob Porter. We want to talk about security clearances in the White House, uh, multi layered onion of scandal that that exists there. Um, but we had some it was sort of immigration news that happened yesterday. I mean, the news is that nothing happened. Right, But right. it was an important political standoff. Uh, I read on Twitter this morning from the president of the United States that Democrats have really let the dreamers down. Uh, Republicans have been working hard on DACA, and um, Democrats just, uh, they didn't get it done. Um, would, would you say that's an accurate characterization of events? I mean, I think the hilarious thing here is like, okay, for one thing, obviously— of the four votes that the Senate took on immigration yesterday, three of them were on bills that included some kind of provision to legalize and actually allow to become citizens, people who are currently protected under DACA, people who would be protected. You know, the parameters of that shifted, but that kind of those, that's kind of in a sideshow. And Democrats voted en masse for two of those bills, and two of those bills had a majority of votes, but didn't hit the 60-vote threshold. So they both had about, was, well, let's, had about, let's be specific. Votes. And so, and, and in both cases, that was a few Republicans joining with almost all the Democrats. Right, right. There were a few Democratic defections from the right on the, uh, kind of the McCain-Coons proposal, which was just, you know, we'll legalize DREAMers, allow them to become citizens, and in exchange, we'll, like, study the border. Um, it was so, very, so very minimal. pretty close to a clean It was dream pretty act. close to Clean Dream Act, yeah. Um, and so there were some Democratic defections from the right on that and a couple of, you know, a couple of Republican support. But the the second Democratic proposed amendment um, had been the product of the quote-unquote Common Sense Coalition, the group that Susan Collins had, Collins had been convening after the January shutdown, where they'd had the, the famous talking stick meetings, had finally come to an agreement. It was released on Wednesday night. There were eight Republican co-sponsors. It actually, for a brief second, looked like there was a genuinely bipartisan deal. Uh, and it f- also failed by 50—it it got 54 votes, had a couple— Democratic defections from the left, uh, both New Mexico senators didn't like that it appropriated $25 billion for the wall. Uh, Kamala Harris of California didn't like that it blocked DREAMers who were legalized from becoming citizens and then sponsoring their parents. Uh, but it got those eight Republican votes and it just And only needed, those eight right, Republican right. votes. Right, right. And it, no it, other it would have needed three it. more votes. And it did not get those three more votes, in large part because immediately after it came out, White House officials started saying, we're going to do everything we can to kill this. Not only did they, like, go the full court press against any other Republicans joining it, they got DHS to send a press release that mentioned 9-11. They held an entire press call just bashing Lindsey Graham. They actually went so far as to threaten, like, they they were trying to pressure some of the Republicans who had co-sponsored it to back off. They told reporters that there were 
things in that bill that Republicans didn't understand were in that bill and that they should be pressed on whether they still supported the bill. Uh, They didn't successfully get any of those defections. But like in that atmosphere, it is not that surprising that Republicans who might otherwise have been on the fence decided not to vote for it. And it was it was a true nuclear attack. It wasn't a like we have the following three concerns oh, no, 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 about no, no. this bill kind of thing. It was like salt the earth. Like it and to to be fair to the White House, I mean, they after being very confusing about this topic for months, I would say, for the past few weeks had been very clear that like the only thing that they would accept was legislation that included radical fundamental changes to how legal immigration to the United States works. And this bill didn't do that. I mean, it wasn't— I don't think they've been as clear as you're giving them credit for. I think that they have been playing for the last several weeks a two-step, where they've been saying that, you know, the only things that they've actually expressed support for are things that closely resemble the framework that they themselves proposed that included those deep cuts to legal family-based immigration. But they've also said that they support any—that they would support a bill that addresses, quote-unquote, chain migration in some form and have not actually—they've they've never explicitly said, if it doesn't go as far as our own proposal, we won't support it. They've they've kind of left the door open for something that could theoretically address those things that, that would be more moderate that they could support. But, but let's back up and be clear about what this deal was, yeah, the yeah, bipartisan yeah. Sure. deal with eight Republicans. I mean, t- tell me if I'm oversimplifying, but I think of this as basically the uh, dreamer path to citizenship plus lots of wall money deal. Is, is that, yeah, is it's, that it's, fair? That's not wrong. Like, it definitely didn't. I mean, there wasn't even an attempt to— uh, to kind of tell the White House, yes, we've satisfied the things that you want in there. There was no attempt to, you know, screw with the diversity visa lottery. There was no attempt to do anything on family-based immigration. The the stuff in there that actually I found surprisingly dovish and that I think really sent the White House into, you know, a state of tearing its hair out rage was that in an, in what I gather was an attempt to make sure that Dreamer's parents, even though they weren't going to be legalized under this bill, wouldn't be kind of targeted for deportation. The bill required ICE to prioritize people who have felonies or a certain number of misdemeanors or people who entered after, initially it was June 2018, they changed it to January 2018 so it wouldn't be literally after the bill was passed, which would be bad. Um, but like that is, it's really surprising to see a bunch of Republicans signing on to a bill that not only doesn't make any cuts to legal immigration, not only legalizes, you know, and gives citizenship to up to 1.8 million people, but that, like, essentially would have codified the enforcement regime that was in place under the last years of the Obama administration. I mean, I I thought it was an important moment, you know, because I think the the opinions about things of United States senators is often a lagging indicator to some extent. Mm-hmm. of where political parties are headed. And this was something you often saw in Obama's first two years in office, which was that a lot of the Democratic Party as it existed in 2009 was sort of the pre-Obama Democratic Party. And part of what you saw in the willingness of a, a non-trivial number of Republican senators to sign on to that codification of the enforcement priority scheme was that, like, it's clear that the Republican base is, like, really into Donald Trump and to Donald Trump's views on immigration, and that's part of, like, 
how Donald Trump became the nominee. But part of why they were so into that is that lots and lots of sort of legacy Republican politicians really aren't, right? That like on the merits, it seems, there's a half dozen or more Senate Republicans. These are not like Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, they are um, moderate-ish, but it's not like they have some huge number of Latino constituents up in Maine that Collins is trying to cater to. They just like, they, I think, have dovish opinions on immigration. And those opinions are clearly becoming obsolete in conservative politics, but like they as individual human beings, you know, still persist there. Like senators tend to hang around for a long time. You see people realign their views with rising political forces all the time, but you also sometimes see them not doing that. And 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 you saw, you know, both in what that bill said and also in the fact that Trump's preferred bill, I mean, it's not just that it didn't get 60 votes. It, it did really quite poorly. It, it got 60 votes. It got 60 no votes. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, 39 yes votes. They have not, Trump has not come close to forging a consensus among Republican Party elected officials that this is, this is good public policy. Um, And that's, it's unusual for a president to so forcefully put at the top of the legislative agenda an issue where he doesn't have the clear support of his own party. And that's, I mean, it's, it's an odd choice. And it's, I think it's part of the reason that Trump's public messaging makes it seem like more of a close partisan issue than that the frenetic activity on the Hill really indicated. So I think this is 110% true, and I think it's actually true in terms of it, both kinds of defections from the, the, pre, the president's preferred bill, because there were definitely, I think it is generally the case that Senate Republicans are less interested in cutting legal immigration than the president is, than the Republican base is. Our colleague Tara Golshan had a piece this week where she went around to a bunch of Republicans, including many of the Republicans, you know, signed on to co-sponsor the Grassley bill that Trump had endorsed. And all of most of them said, oh, I don't really want to cut legal immigration. Uh, we'll fix that down the road. The Chamber of Commerce had this like last minute press release where they were like, this is actually a terrible bill. Guys. Right, Still- right. It was so. So, you know, even even some of those yes votes were people who don't actually aren't willing to say yet that they agree with the president and with their part, you know, where their party is clearly going on this matter. But it's also the case that some of those defections were from the right. And I credit Andrew really for pointing this out, that, you know, there, you don't get to 60 no votes just because a lot of Senate Republicans want to keep legal immigration at, at current levels. You get to 60 no votes because some of them don't care as much about cutting legal immigration as they do about, they don't care enough to sign on to a bill that would be essentially an amnesty bill. Uh, And that is also a kind of an artifact of the older politics of the Republican Party on this, because the kind of Trumpian view, which is not that far off from what a lot of his base believes, is that amnesty for especially like a limited amnesty for 1.8 million people doesn't matter all that much because they're already here and that that is totally worth it in exchange for substantial cuts to legal immigration going forward. That's a trade-off that like a lot more House conservatives are willing to make. There aren't—House House Republicans were kind of upset about 
the legalization provisions in the Trump immigration framework when it came out, but they were all on background and you're not hearing a lot of pressure to like bring them to the right now, but they appear to be more kind of responsive to the new immigration priorities of this president than the Senate is. And what that appears to be moving toward is a world in which instead of the fight being over unauthorized immigrants currently in the U.S., do you legalize them or not? The fight is over, do we reduce legal immigration substantially from current levels or do we keep it where it is? But I I think this is really interesting, actually, because so this is the Grassley bill. It's the official White House proposal. It had deep cuts to legal immigration, as you're saying, in exchange for a path to citizenship for dreamers. And it got 14 Republican senators voted against this bill um, and three Democrats voted for it. And, you know, most Republicans voted for it and, and most Democrats voted against it. But 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 the real mystery is is sort of why those 14 Republicans voted against it. And I went to all of their websites. And what was interesting to me is that very few of them posted actual explanations for why they opposed this bill. Um, and, and there are these two possible reasons. They either oppose the amnesty, what they'd call amnesty provisions, or they oppose the big cuts to legal immigration. Uh, One of the only people. I mean, reasonably, it could be both. It could also be both, I guess. That would be much more in line with what the Republican Party was saying from, like, 1990 to 2015. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think if I were Mitt Romney, I would say, like, this is a terrible bill, right? That, like, yeah. that like it does this amnesty that is ill-advised, and then it cuts legal immigration, which is also ill-advised. But they're not actually saying this. Yeah, like, they're right. not coming out and giving a statement that explaining why they oppose the White House proposal. And maybe that's just because they don't want to get blasted with criticism and angry phone calls and they think they can sort of fly under the radar with like a sort of vague no vote that is kind of a Rorschach test could mean whatever you want it to mean. One of the only people who was clear was Ted Cruz, who, uh, of course, his political strategy has always been to try to be as far right on immigration as he can, far uh, far more to the right than any other Republicans, and and somehow that failed to get him the nomination in 2016 when somebody else came along who uh, owned the issue a, a little better than him. But, well, yeah, who had, who had never proposed an amendment to drastically expand work visas, for example. Yeah, but Because uh, that used to be consistent with being on the right. Yeah. Also, as Trump said, you don't find a lot of evangelicals in Cuba. Wait, I'm not sure I understand. That was a that was a, that was a Trump campaign line against Cruz. I, I think Ted, I think I think oh, the Ted okay. Cruz will find that oh, it yeah. is tra- challenging for a Latino person to become the champion of a hysterical racist freakout about immigration from Latin America. Um, no matter how no matter how much he wants to be that champion, like there's a there's a problem there. It seems to me. But anyway, Cruz was there. He released his statement opposing amnesty. He voted. I believe he was the only vote voting against bringing this bill even to the floor in the first place and yes. and, and opening this debate on it uh, because he said he just opposes amnesty so, so much. But then there's this – okay, so then you have the eight Republicans who signed on to the um, – Rounds thing. The rounds compromise the uh, Dreamer Path to Citizenship for a wall money deal. And they turned out to be the only eight Republicans that were willing to vote for it. And then there is another group of um, maybe maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20 Republicans, 
who, or, or maybe even 30, who, who don't really like talking about this issue much at all. Yes. And so they were vague on the rounds bill uh, and ended up all voting against it in the end. This includes um, some people who had shown inklings of, of either deal-making or uh, immigration-specific deal-cutting in the past, like Bob Corker of Tennessee. Heller. Dean Tillis Heller of Nevada. Of, yeah, yeah, of North Carolina, Langford of Oklahoma. They're actually, yeah, there, there were a bunch of people who had been involved in various talks that uh, over the last five months who at the end of the day were not willing to vote for this. Yeah, and, and so, so one of the lines that you hear from some of the people in this group who are explaining their thinking, like even Marco Rubio can be said as part of this group in a way, uh, is that the problem is that they don't want to repeat the failures of the 2013 Senate immigration bill, which, as we remember, passed with uh, mostly Democratic votes and and uh, a smaller group of Republican votes smaller, through the Senate. Still substantial. I mean, this is still this was a 67-68 vote bill. Yeah. yeah. So it's not you know when we say a small number of Republican votes, we're kind of used to thinking of that as exactly as many votes sure. as are yes, needed. Yes. It was but, it was a nice bipartisan vote. But most Republicans were against it. So Rubio and Tillis both said this week that like th- they think the main. Uh, actually, Rubio may have said this a little earlier, that they think the main sort of issue is that they need a bill that enough conservatives can be happy with. They they really are suspicious. They basically they think want it's to, a dead end. They to, want to apply the logic of the House Hastert rule, rule yeah, right. preemptively to the Senate. Yeah, I, I don't Which know if it's the Which makes a certain amount of sense of if you Hastert think about rule. this as you don't want to take a, vo- a hard vote on a bill that won't become law. The Hastert rule... As far as we know, would be in place in the House. Yes, I Therefore, agree with Marco Rubio. The, the interesting thing about that, to me, is back back in back in 2013, right? A big conservative imperative was to make sure that the House did not pass any immigration bill of any kind, like regardless of its content, because that would open the door to a conference committee. And now the White House seems committed to getting the House to pass this. Goodlatte McCall bill that because they like what the bill says, uh, but it technically like changes the legislative dynamic, right? It, it creates a situation in which Mike Rounds say can go back around to Tillis and Rubio and say, well, we should take this up and we should amend it with our ideas and then kick it back to the House. I want to I want to get back to something that Andrew kind of threw out because I think that it's kind of key to understanding where exactly the White House failed this week. Like, Andrew, when he was talking about the senators who voted against, the Republicans who voted against the Grassley bill that the White House endorsed, said that maybe they thought they could just fly under the radar instead of having to release a press statement justifying their vote. If you're worried that the president of the United States, the de facto leader of your party, who has great rapport with your party's base and who thinks for whom this issue is a signature issue is going to blast you hard for voting against his preferred bill, you don't think you can sneak under the radar. Like, if they were feeling heat from the White House for everything the White House has done over the last few weeks to kill bills that they don't like, 
they haven't apparently been putting the same pressure into making sure that, you know, Rand Paul really has to be held accountable for voting against the Grassley bill. That, you know, Jim Imhoff has to be held accountable for voting against the Grassley bill. Like, there isn't that apparent they're well, Trump not, is pretending that it's only Democrats who voted against it. Yeah, but at the same time, if you actually, you know, the, the part of that logic actually would could very easily be applied to this kind of behind-closed-doors arm-twisting of, look, we really need to present Republicans as all supporting some kind of solution so we can hit Democrats on this. We like this bill. We think it's important. We don't care how you feel about legal immigration. You should vote for it. Like, there hasn't—this White House doesn't tend to have a great understanding of how to get votes in Congress generally, but it's been really striking for how much they claim to like the Grassley bill, that they didn't appear to— have anybody running scared on the right. And yeah, it was a pretty pathetic showing for a bill that was a major, uh, allegedly a major priority of the administration that they, you know, strongly supported. This was the official right. White House bill, and it only got 39 votes in the end and 36 out of the 50 Republican senators who were Right, there. and this is the thing for me, is like, it's going to be really, it should be really hard as a, as just as a matter of, how reality worked for Trump to be able to turn around and blame Democrats for not passing a bill that he couldn't get a third of his own caucus on or a third of his, you know, his party's Senate caucus on. Like, this is, I think, a real, it is, it is very patently untrue that the White House has done everything in its power to get to a deal. That is not just because they tried to kill bills that they didn't like for reasons unrelated to what it did for DACA recipients. That is because they had a bill that they claimed to like because they claimed that they wanted to address the issue of what happens to DACA recipients, and they did not do everything they could have to get that bill passed. Well, now we should talk about what happens next, because there are a few interesting things that came out in the hours or so after the deal uh, after the votes all failed in the Senate. Uh, there's one. So so two of those mysterious Republican senators who voted against the uh, the Grassley compromise and also voted against the Rounds compromise, the bipartisan one, uh, they are uh, Jerry Moran of Kansas and uh, John Thune of South Dakota. They joined with um, also Rob Portman of Ohio to to announce a statement, which uh, basically it, it sort of reads like more of a punt. They 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 were taking the path to citizenship for you know what's been on the table for as much as uh, two million, one point eight million or so uh, uh, dreamers off the table, and instead what they're proposing is continue DACA to some extent as it exists now. Details are still vague. Uh, but but no path to citizenship, but just sort of, you know. Just as if Trump had never canceled it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, this is. And also I have lost money. track of how many times Congress has floated the idea of a DACA punt. It is notable to me that none of those have ever translated into actual bill text. And I suspect that a lot of the reason for that is that it's, no one actually has figured out how this would work as policy. Um, it's, there's. There are a lot of levels on which it's really not 
easy to say this thing that is an executive branch program is now like just turned legislative. It raises a lot of questions about opening a second class of, you know, not not second class citizenship, but like a second sub-citizenship class. It totally screws over the Trump administration's attempt to argue to the Supreme Court that the DACA program was, you know, an overstep executively to begin with. I, I generally tend to think that I will believe that this stuff is real when I see somebody actually put a bill out. But I do think you're right. It's interesting that that even some of the Republicans who weren't willing to, like, stick their necks out on anything this week still appear to have some, you know— It signals to me that they were unhappy with, you know— they ended up voting no on the good bipartisan compromise of wall money for Dreamer Path to citizenship. And then they also were not happy with, like, their official position being or, – or the party's official position being, we want these big cuts to legal immigration. So so this proposal, like, they're like, well, we want to, you know, put off the legal immigration issue to the side. Let's just focus on – like, like, we're the reasonable ones. This is not a full path to citizenship. It's not amnesty. It's um, uh, uh, it, it's a punt. And, and it also includes the wall money that the president wants. I mean, I think it may also be the case that a lot of Republicans don't particularly want don't want the blame if DACA recipients in their states former like lose their work permits and get apprehended and and put in deportation proceedings. Like, I don't know whether they think they can deal with that just by making positive noises or if they actually want to deal with that by passing a bill. But this is the problem. I mean, the staggering failure of the Republican Party as a whole to exercise some kind of discipline and decision-making rationality around this topic for a period of months, right, is just amazing. Because this is what I said last week. For the typical Republican, the policy solution that they want for DACA is DACA, right? It does not give Dreamers a path to citizenship. So they do not become voters for the Democratic Party. Because they do not become citizens, there is no specific chain migration unleashed by Dreamer citizens, right? Because the deportation pipeline is full anyway, it has no impact on the overall pace of apprehensions and removals that takes place in the United States. And it keeps the public focus on the deportation issue off the most absolutely sympathetic cases that you can find, and it doesn't require you to do anything, right? Like, if yeah. the president had just not canceled this, right. and particularly as a party, right, if Republican members of Congress had started, you have to, like, do party politics, but spend August, September, October talking about how canceling DACA would actually create this unproductive environment, get a couple of the attorneys general to maybe drop off that lawsuit, send a strong signal to George W. Bush appointees on the federal court that, like, they do not want this lawsuit to prevail, that it will be political trouble. You know, there are, like, ways of taking care of this. Also, the original Trump gambit to, like, cancel DACA and then use it as leverage to strike a deal to get border wall money, that also would have made sense as a strategy. Like, that strategy worked. Yeah. But but they kept changing it. And if you that had, strategy succeeded. If, they, the Democrats completely conceded. Right, right. Yeah. Except then Trump said he didn't want it, right? But if you had gone back in time, if Trump had gone to a GOP retreat sometime in summer 2017 and said, I'm going to cancel DACA. And then Paul Ryan had said, why are you going to cancel DACA? And then Trump had said, I'm going to cancel DACA because I believe that will cause Democrats to agree to a 50% cut in legal immigration. Paul Ryan would have said to him, like, Mr. President, like, 
that's not a good, re- you know what I mean? Like th- that outcome is not going to happen. Yeah. So like, let's think like, wh- like, what are we trying to achieve here? And, and this is why, I, I mean, you're right, Tara, right? The problem is, is like Congress can't pass a law that says we are not going to discuss this issue because the president, right? I mean, like the very act of legislating, right? Like, like the, the genie is already the out of the bottle. On of, like they, Republicans hunting. appear to have realized too late that like you're right. I actually when when that statement came out last night, I was like, oh, somebody in Rob Portman's office must have been listening to the weeds. But last week. if they can find some legislative language that has this effect. I mean, it's it's challenging to know what that would be, but also there's, there's smart lawyers out there. If they can find some legislative language that would have this effect and they can smuggle it into the omnibus bill that rolls through. In March. In March. Like, they just might get away with it, right? Because the omnibus is a big enough, it has enough momentum on its own that it does allow members to have stated objections or not to any particular thing that's in it or vote for it or not. Like, like it doesn't, the exact vote count doesn't matter. The exact provisions don't matter. I don't know if you can find a, a legal formula that will, like, accomplish what Rob Portman says he wants to accomplish. But it 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 would be the thing that achieves the most people's, like, core desire here. I mean, I think you can find a legal formula. I think that that probably, if it were to happen, would open up a really big debate among Democrats uh, or even just, you know, knee-jerk opposition among Democrats, uh, but would open a really big normative debate on is it worth it to protect some people from deportation in exchange for creating in the law going forward a formula for allowing people to stay in the U.S. without giving them any of the benefits. Well, that's why I'm saying you, you put in an omnibus, right? So, so right, people don't need to say they think it's a good idea. No, right. But I just, I, but the I house think that, is still I, and I think that immigrant, I think there. any of the Democrats who have been moved to listen to immigrant rights activists and to dreamers themselves on this issue would be under a lot of pressure. In oh, case. yeah. Anyway, I don't, it, I, it would be an ugly taken, compromise. I don't, don't want to take sure. up this, this, Weeds talking about immigration because I want people to explain to me what the hell is going on in the White House with why all of their staffers don't have security clearances. Yo, yeah. So can I, I, I admit that I have been focusing on immigration this week. Can someone explain to me what the hell happened with Rob Porter? Okay. Well, so the timeline of the Rob Porter scandal, as I understand it, this is a little bit different from the actual timeline of events, right? But on February 7th, I guess it is. The the Daily Mail from the UK has a story and it says that Rob Porter beat his ex-wives and that one of them at least had a restraining order out against him. And the White House's initial reaction to that was to make supportive statements about Porter. Then the next day, they John Kelly called him a man of great integrity and honor. And honor. Um, there was there was a Huckabee Sanders honor. So then the next day, there is a second Daily Mail story. The second story includes photographs of one of the wives with black eyes and 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 stuff like that. Photographic evidence obviously makes a difference in the in the media, um, and also it. The Daily Mail, I think for good reason, is sort of like in a bad air in U.S. circles as a source of information. Uh, but the photographs were authentic. Uh, also, the scoop was, I mean, to, to, in, in their defense, this was a big scoop. So this comes out, and now the tide turns against Porter. He resigns, and the White House starts saying that these were new allegations that had come to light, right? And that that had changed their thinking. But then the day after that, 
it becomes clear that, like, this is not the case, that Rob Porter was a senior White House staffer. He was submitted for security clearance. So the FBI did a background check. It does not require, like, the greatest investigative force in human history to find, like, court orders against you. Um, So they had known about this since last summer. January, actually, right. in in some January 2017. So, so Porter came in. He was widely respected in Republican circles. He was Orrin Hatch's chief of staff, and um, he was basically viewed as one of the more responsible adult uh, hires for the White House. So, A real political professional. Yeah. So he he took the job of White House staff secretary, and it's. A really important job. Um, we don't yet entirely understand exactly how it functions uh, in this particular presidency because the job involves a lot of paper. And this is a president who famously does not like to read very much. But basically, the White House staff secretary controls or or sort of runs a process around what paper gets to the president. I mean, I think a good a good signpost here is to name some former staff secretaries, right? Like John Podesta was sec- staff secretary in the Clinton administration, Harriet Myers and Brett Kavanaugh, uh, one of whom was almost a Supreme Court justice, one of whom is an important circuit court judge now, were, were um, staff secretaries under George W. Bush. Uh, Lisa Brown was was Obama's first staff secretary. So it, it, this is an important— yeah, it, these are these are low-profile— you know, some of them are, are famous now, but but at the time, it, it's a low visibility position, but it's a really important one because you're really close to the president and, you know, a lot of documents get produced in the government. And, and we're talking about here both documents in the form of sort of policy papers and decision memos and, and briefings, but also uh, press clippings. Uh, there was, and that's important for the Trump administration because uh, there was an issue in the early months of the White House where random staffers would just kind of, you know, put printouts from kooky websites or whatever on the president's desk, and he would read them and, and get really mad about them and sometimes tweet about them. And uh, this this was viewed as a big problem in the White House. So when Trump fired Priebus and brought in John Kelly as chief of staff, one of Kelly's immediate top priorities was to kind of bring more discipline to the way the West Wing functioned. And part of that was in getting greater control of the paper flow to the president. He wanted to make it clear that, you know, you can't just walk into the president's office and drop a document on his desk or print out of a story. This stuff has to go through an orderly process. Uh, Otherwise, things are just chaotic. So Kelly's ally in this process to gain, uh, in his project, to gain better sort of control and and stability over the White House was Rob Porter, the staff secretary. And by all accounts, Porter rose to the occasion. Uh, He was given more and more responsibility. He uh, started traveling with the president. He took on more and more of a policy role. He played a role in writing the State of the Union. His star just kept rising. Uh, But the problem is that it turns out that – all along, the White House was at least aware of these domestic violence allegations, uh, and the, his security clearance for this entire period was 
uh, what's known as an interim security clearance rather than a full one. So basically the deal with that is that new staffers come into the White House in a new presidency or sometimes in the middle of a presidency. And uh, if they're going to be handling classified information, they need a security clearance. And sometimes the FBI you know, needs a little more time to check out your background. So they give you an interim security clearance and you know, that is not supposed to last forever. There's there's no specific time limit on how long an interim clearance can last, but it's very unusual, especially for someone who is in such a high-level important job and seeing so many documents as the White House staff secretary to have an interim security clearance for over a year. So the way it's supposed to work, right, is they see a red flag, they're like, we're going to have to look into this. Here's an interim clearance. Then they look into it. And then having looked into it, you either get the permanent security clearance or you get bounced. But there's no actual rule that's – like with, as, as with many things in the Trump era, there's no actual rule to that effect. And it appears that what was going on with Porter was the FBI continued to keep it open – because they weren't willing to certify that he met the standards for a clearance and therefore and the White House didn't want to fire him. So he just kept operating on the interim clearance. And critically, one reason why the White House wouldn't say that you can't work in the White House if you can't get a proper security clearance is that we've known forever that the FBI won't give Jared Kushner a security clearance. Right. So it's like the president's son-in-law is like the unfireable man. He is not clearable. And so therefore, the standard has to be that you don't need to be clearable to work in the Trump White House. And so. And and to be clear, it goes beyond Kushner himself. There are reportedly dozens of of staffers in the White House. Well, that's then then what came out. Right. But Kushner is the big one. And and and, what is happening to Kushner. But also Don McGahn. Yeah, yeah. But 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 I mean Kushner is 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 the one Trump cares most about. And you know, so the White House's response to these security clearance issues um is largely it, it's plausible that their response to this greater problem is in large part sort of dictated around, you know, this Jared Kushner problem. So I don't want to be conspiratorial just because I don't have as much information, which I, I think is a problem that, you know, it's it's very easy to default to that mindset. That's the, the best era. time to be conspiratorial. No. Um, but that's like the difference between the two of us in a nutshell. Um, but is it wrong to think that, A, we know that the FBI is a very down-the-line, procedurally correct organization. They, they value that a lot. as it, it's, in their, it's in their self-concept as an organization. It's probably overvalorized more than it's actually practiced, but whatever. This is something where they did not, you know, their their procedures have a gap in them. And the FBI was not willing to take affirmative action to, you know, to say, look, it's been eight months. You can't actually just keep Rob Porter and Jared Kushner on interim security clearances. However, it is also the case this president has been fighting a war with the FBI since Basically, he got it got into office that he already fired one FBI director is 
you know, reportedly super mad at another FBI director that he, you know, has been going after FBI agents who were detailed to the Mueller investigation, yada, yada, yada. Is it wrong to assume that this might have gone differently if the FBI had not been so worried that the White House was going to respond very negatively if the FBI tried to assert itself? I, well, I mean, I think there's a few different ways you can look at this. I mean, I think it's normal. It's correct. I mean, the the FBI does not have the authority to veto who gets presidential appointments, right? I mean, I mean, we've said like a million times in the Trump era that it's like a real political system runs on on norms rather than laws. It would obviously be I it seems reasonable that the FBI sort of can veto who gets like low-level jobs that require security clearances, but, like, can't really veto who the president chooses to select for his senior staff. Because It's like, probably worth mentioning that the president himself probably couldn't get a security clearance for a low-level job. couldn't. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no way that Donald Trump— I mean— we, we learned of two payoffs to people he had had affairs with in the past this week alone. And the, is, the volume of the debts. I mean, he he's not even the universe of, of clearable. But, I mean, to an extent, like, that's normal. Like, Donald Trump is also not, like, qualified for a job at the CIA. But, like, so are—like, most presidents aren't, you know— but so by the same token, right, it's like if you're the president, like, you can hire who who you want. I do think there's a reasonable question to ask. I mean, I, I think nobody has ever quite wanted to say this, but, you know, it is normally not considered prudent for the president of the United States to, like, pick giant fights with the institutional, you know, national security state, right? Clearly, people at the FBI were aware for months that this situation was obtaining in the White House and were not saying anything about it. Uh, There were press reports specifically about Kushner. um, But now suddenly we have heard, you know, not just about Porter, but about upwards of 130 people operating on interim security clearances. I I don't know who journalists' sources were for that, but like I don't think it's crazy to think that, you know, you push out the deputy director, you, like, lie about agents' response to James Comey, you fire the director there, you, like, trash the whole institution, you suggest that the whole national security team's work was, like, a set up by Christopher Steele. Like, you are encouraging people to, you know, bring information to light that is of interest to the public that was not previously in the public record, and something like that seems to have happened. You know, I mean, it's interesting that with the Porter story, right, there's there's a question of the classification, which is like a technical issue. And then there's a question of like the wife beating per se, right, which is a, you know, it's like it's both. Like It would be one thing, I think, for the Trump administration to take the position Okay, like the deep state is fucking with us and not giving our people clearances properly um, based on who knows what, you know, like Sarah Sanders doesn't have right. clearance. For or instance. like they don't understand the business world. Right. And that's right. why, like, and that's why, why I think it's interesting Jared. that this is that, right, that this is uh, Porter rather than Jared. Like you can imagine a world where it's like people don't actually care that Jared Kushner can't get a security clearance because his family is massively in debt. Like, right. Whereas in this case, I mean, if that is the reason. We, we, we don't have. A ton of visibility. Yes, we, we don't know what the, what exactly the reason is. But, I mean, in Porter's case, it's that, you know, he's repeatedly, he's like a serial domestic abuser. And 
apparently, like, John Kelly and Don McGahn and others were just, like, they were fine with that. Um, and and then they, li- they lied about having been fine with it, right? And they tried to say that, like, oh, this new information came to light, and then they dropped him. But it's now turned out that, like, they actually held a background briefing to back him up. You know, when these stories were first starting to percolate, right? So it's it's turned out that they were more supportive of Porter than they had initially claimed. And also that they knew many, many months earlier about all of this and had just decided that, like, they were totally fine with it. And that, to me, it's, it's important because it's reminiscent of the situation with Michael Flynn, where it's not, like— all that unusual for a senior official in the government to wind up being fired for some kind of misconduct. I mean, there's a lot of people in a presidential administration. Nobody is, like, perfect in their hiring decisions. But what you've seen with Trump is now two very senior officials who committed misconduct. The top decision makers knew about the misconduct. They did not consider the misconduct to be worth firing them over. And then when it was exposed to the public— suddenly they were fired, right? And that's different. From a distance, it looks like a situation which is common, which is like somebody does something wrong, the media exposes that the person did something wrong, then the person gets fired. That's like the system working how it should. But these are cases where the misconduct was revealed privately to the top decision makers in the White House who chose to do nothing about it. And yet they on some level acknowledge that the misconduct is serious because once it became known to the mass public, they go and fire the person. That's a very – like that's just a profoundly unsound way to run your operation. Like not only is the the underlying thing that Porter did is really bad, but you can't – it's it's very – it's confused. It's it's, this is like not how you run – uh, it makes sense to me. They, uh, as long as no one knew about it, uh, as long as the public didn't know about it, they thought it was fine. Right, and they could get away with it. And is... then once the public did find out no, about no, it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense, but I'm saying it's, you know, every time you hear about, you know, Scott Pruitt and his first class airfare and, and Shulkin and his Wimbledon tickets, right? They're consistently sending the message down the line that like the president of the United States, the chief of staff, the White House counsel, all those people, they do not care on the merits about like whether you break the law, about whether you do your job well, that like if you can get away with it, thumbs up. That like that's the Trump ethic. This is where the Flynn and Porter thing and what you just said about the commonality between Flynn and Porter is super clarifying for me because unlike the kind of, you know, plutocrats milking the government thing, which like Donald Trump has never said he doesn't want plutocrats milking the government. Like, yeah, yeah, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. But he never actually defined what drain drain the swamp meant. And it's become pretty clear that he actually meant, I don't like the deep state. Um, Porter and Flynn were both cases in which the White House clearly didn't care about a failing that people, that like the public thinks, that you know, is very important, right? The, like, the public thinks that a pre- that a president should not be, you know, considering the interests of foreign countries in tandem with American interests. That, you know, that like America first means America first, that there shouldn't be kind of back channels or compromised positions or anything like that. And the public tends to believe that domestic violence is bad and that domestic abusers are bad people. In both of those cases, 
It has been unclear whether Donald Trump himself holds those beliefs. Like, even before the Michael the Michael Flynn incident, it was not, you know, there were jokes about Donald Trump being in Putin's pocket. You know, he had been obviously very dovish on Russia and had even said publicly some things about, you know, I hope they find the rest of Hillary Clinton's emails and all of that. There were suspicions that Donald Trump cared about this less than the public did. And then the Flynn thing and their desire to go to the mattresses on Flynn until it was found out publicly appeared to confirm that. In this case, the White House makes noise about respecting women. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets very huffy whenever anyone implies that the president doesn't respect women. John Kelly, you know, got on his high horse in December and said, back in my day, we used to revere women. We put them on a pedestal. I can't believe what Democrats are doing. You know, to be clear, he anymore. said that in the course of lying about a yeah. female member of Congress. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a yes. scumbag. <laughs> um but, you know, the the despite all of those noises, the suspicion has persisted that Donald Trump doesn't respect women much. And so for the White House to have gone to the mattresses on Porter to, you know, to say that not only, you know, they weren't defending, well, we don't think that Porter is a threat to national security, we think that he's a sharp mind, but to defend his honor and integrity as a person when they knew damn well that he punched his wife is like, it it confirms something that I think a lot of us have known is true of the Trump administration, but that the Trump administration denies, which is they don't actually give a shit about women. The story was that she injured herself in a struggle over a vase, I believe. Well, so a few points here. Uh, One of the things that uh, Kelly and others have been saying to sort of defend their lack of action here is is that is that Porter told them that the allegations were phony and that like, oh, it's it was just nothing. And I guess they just sort of like believed him without ever looking into him. It, that's what they claim. And one of the things is that, that Porter— though? Or is that just a, it turns out that we don't care enough about domestic violence? It's one to, of the things they're saying. And right. and so, and so and to get a sense of how flimsy this defense is, what Matt just alluded to is that um, Porter's first wife, who had the pictures of her uh, with a black eye, she said he punched him in the face. And now he has told people, and those people have leaked to the press, that— what actually happened is that they were both fighting and that she fell on a vase and that gave her the black eye, which, I don't know, seems pretty difficult to believe. But I think with Porter himself, when we try to bring it back to Trump, uh, I do think it's worth pointing out that it's not clear that Trump ever heard about these or was ever told about them Fair. Uh, until you know, the Daily Mail stuff came out um, uh, this month. In, in the so, case of Porter. Not, in the case of Flynn, we do, in fact. Oh, yes. yes. Well, uh, yeah, let, let's keep Flynn separate for the yeah. time being. But but so then, so Porter, I think Porter's longevity in the administration, despite the allegations, I, I do think, yes, John Kelly and, and McGahn clearly didn't feel uh, – compelled to take action against an accused domestic abuser, but um, but also they viewed him like they thought he was indispensable or they, they thought that he was, you know, the Trump administration is so lacking in qualified, competent people. And this was a guy who was already in there and, uh, you know, was useful, uh, crucial to this main goal of John Kelly specifically in 
you know, installing more stability to the White House uh, decision-making and, and paper flow and things like that, that, that they just didn't want to move against him. Then when it comes to the Daily Mail, that's where Donald Trump's own sort of um, fear of believing women's allegations against himself comes in. And uh, Jane Coaston wrote a good piece about that for us. But basically, I mean, you know, Trump seems to be afraid that unless if a man is accused of something by a woman, Trump thinks that he has to always stress that, um, you know, unless it's Democrat, that the man uh, could be innocent and that he's he's saying he's innocent because, of course, he has been faced with many such allegations himself and his position is that he's completely innocent and that all these women are lying. So so women allegations, allegations from women can be total lies meant to frame up a good guy is, is like a core political position of Donald Trump that he's very interested in defending. And so then to sort of bring this a, a little bit full circle, right? The other thing that emerged out of this story was significant intra-White House disgruntlement with John Kelly, right? That there were a lot of fingers, anonymous fingers, but like fingers from inside the White House staff were pointing at Kelly specifically as a bad actor here. Which right? is not there, there intuitively were the way things would have worked, right? If the White House was told in February about the allegations against Porter, you can logically understand somebody doggedly doing the backtracking and figuring out which person who was in the White House in February might have been responsible. But instead, it's gone to Kelly, who wouldn't be at the White House for five yeah, more months. You could have tried to Presumably say this was all Rince because fault. people might be interested in getting John Kelly looking bad for something. Yeah, you are seeing now uh, quotes in quotation marks from anonymous White House staffers to reporters that are calling John Kelly a big fat liar and saying the Kelly cover-up is uh, is falling apart. And, you know, this is an administration that leaks a lot and has a lot of rival factions, but but that's unusual. That 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 goes that goes further than what we've seen. And it it seems to have exposed something that's been a bit dormant in um the Kelly tenure so far, which is that whenever a new chief comes in and tries to uh, bring more rigor to the White House process, uh, that means that a lot of people are left out in the cold and that a lot of people get annoyed and and pe- people who used to be influential under the more freewheeling uh, old style uh, are have now been locked out and and they are mad about it and they are now sort of seizing on this Porter issue to because they think Kelly is vulnerable on it and they're unsheathing their knives and 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 hoping there will be a shakeup. Well, I mean, if you if you judge John Kelly's tenure as chief of staff on its own merits, right? Like Kelly said, I cannot control the president. I can't control the way his White House works. I can control what gets to him. If you think about that as a response to the previous era of like there was always chaos and everyone was always backbiting in the press and it wasn't clear, you know, who actually had the president's ear. This episode has made it clear that Kelly no longer has any control over that either, right? There's still a lot of infighting. It's still like, there's still a lot of Trump running hot and cold on his closest advisors. So there's an argument that John Kelly should go away because he has failed to do what he wanted to do, and a lot of the people in the White House feel that he, what he wanted to do wasn't a good idea anyway. But, but I would also say, I mean, it's clear that, like, 
Kelly has used that line a lot so that people will stop asking him about Trump and Twitter. But, like, Kelly has been much more effective than Rents Priebus was. I mean, I would say the biggest difference between Kelly and Priebus is that Kelly actually has tried to control Trump and has been quite effective at it, right? And that in this whole immigration saga we are talking about, like, the key thing that has changed is that Kelly began using his reasonably effective control over the sort of aperture of, like, who gets into the White House and when and for what purpose to ground Trump in this fairly extreme view on legal immigration as his administration's posture, right? That, like, that is a... That is not like John Kelly imposed discipline on the process, served as an honest broker. We have never heard a story where it's like Stephen Miller and four other stakeholders with different points of view, like all came into the White House to do successive briefings with like Kelly just making sure that everybody kept the right time, right? Like Kelly has worked really aggressively, really diligently and quite effectively to prevent Trump from making a dream act for wall deal. Right. That like this is a specific thing that like Lindsey Graham spent a lot of time buttering Trump up, you know, golfing with him, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so people were doing this. They were working the different angles in the White House. And like Kelly, as chief of staff, in a not in a classic chief of staff as honest broker, but in a sort of a, a little bit of a like. If you imagine like a like a reigning monarch, right? And like the king, he's like, he's fine, but he's just like not that diligent. And then, you know, the vizier has a lot of power, right? Like J- John- The hand of the king. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, J- John Kelly very actively shaped this in a particular way. And I mean, one thing I mean, that we were talking about before is it, it, it hasn't worked, right? I mean, like K- Kelly's internal shaping of the White House dialogue worked, but- I, I don't know what it is exactly he was hoping to achieve, but he certainly has not achieved a 50% cut in legal immigration and end to change. Like, like none of that stuff is happening. And like the strategy doesn't make sense. And it goes all the way back to, I mean, I'm I'm glad to be podcasting here with Dara, who is an early John Kelly critic, um, more more on the substance. But I just saying on, on the process, I always thought this was a crazy idea because John Kelly is not like slightly qualified for this job. It would be like putting Rents Priebus in charge of a brigade serving in a foreign war. You know what I mean? Like it's just like he's a general. Good for him. Like this, he's trying to micromanage a congressional negotiation and he has no fucking idea what he's doing. And it's like And he's managing a president who very clearly does not want to be managed. And it's it's but like what what is coming out of this like it's a disaster. Like hundreds of thousands of people's lives might be ruined. Um He's the border security enhancements like are not going to happen. It's bad for the economy. Like it's it's just really bad. It's like you can't put people who have no idea what they're doing in charge of things. And so like if the knives are out for John Kelly and the idea is we should have a chief of staff who like knows something about the wide range of activities that the president of the United States is responsible for. Like I think I think that would be helpful since we don't have a president who does that. It's not good to also not have a chief of staff who knows. You say we can't put people in charge of things who have no idea how things work. What this administration presupposes is, what if you can? Yes, what if you can, right. 
Um, anyway, the stock market's back up, so I guess it's fine. Right. All of all of this basically, what what Matt is building to, although not saying explicitly, is that uh, Trump should fire John Kelly. I, I am I I am you know I am channeling Matt here. Trump should fire John Kelly, replace him with Gary Cohn. Gary Cohn should you know make a a big DACA deal, make everybody happy, and then we can return to regularly scheduled Trump business. That's what I think. Just do do some more. Tweets. Right. This is I don't I don't know what I think. Uh, Go back but, to doing tweets about the stock market. It has always been strange to me that Trump seems very uh, allergic to the idea that a president should try to do popular, well-received things rather than being super controversial and picking fights all the time. And there was a brief moment in September where if, if we hearken back to that, the Chuck and Nancy, he had them over, there was a glimmer of, of hope for for a big dreamer deal that that you know Schumer claimed he he basically agreed to it in the White House in September and you know whether it was Trump himself having cold feet whether it was Kelly's structuring of who was talking to him whether it's you know Miller um I think another thing that's President happened in, in in the transition to Kelly is that you know we went from Priebus and Bannon being the top two people in the White House on this issue to being Kelly and Miller on immigration. Yes. And that is like a sharp move to the right. You know, Bannon was pretty far right. Uh, Miller um, may be further right than Bannon on immigration. And Priebus was a, you know, <laughs> mainstream establishment guy with Republican. no particular right, right. views Priebus, on the issue. much like congressional Republicans, had no desire to touch the issue, if at all possible. And I, but, would, I would say the difference between Miller and Bannon on immigration, if I can characterize it at all, is that Miller is much more single-mindedly focused on immigration. Like, Bannon's vision of what he calls nationalism is both hazy, but like also like really big. You know, like, it has, like, a trade element, like, stuff about foreign policy with China, which, like, Miller's vision is, like, it's yeah. really small. Miller is also less interested in persecuting this as a cult- in prosecuting this as a culture war than he is in actually using the levers of government, which he, you know, th- this—the ways in which this White House has untapped, uh, you know, the executive branch powers to— use restriction, a restrictionist agenda to drive immigration policy. I could go on and on forever. So I think that Donald Trump has, whether he realizes it or not, Donald Trump has always been successful because he's tapped into the essential truth of public opinion on immigration, which is that, like, if you make a centrist deal, you don't get love because the moderates on this issue don't really care. There is a faction on the right that cares a ton, and there is a faction on the left that cares a ton. And, like, there are no parades waiting for you in the streets if you get, you know, 67 votes on a, on a Senate bill. So Donald Trump, after a, a moment in which he appeared to have forgotten that lesson, has now remembered that, like, it is better to be like, loved by a few—has decided that it's better to be loved by a few than liked by the many. And that, I think, is why we—that's not going to change. And the only question is, will there ever be politicians who are willing to be liked by the many? I really disagree with that. I, I, think, that, I think that what you said about people who care and people who don't care, like, all that is 100 percent true. But 
I think, you know, a, a Mitch McConnell idea that he deployed to the opposite effect, but that I think is really, really true, is that there's like a big hazy block of people who like not just on immigration, but like in general, are aware of like the names of policy problems. And they would like to see political leaders solving those problems. And you see it in the, the instinctive rhetoric of like the pro-gun control kids out of Florida. And they're like, you guys should get together and, and you should do a this. thing. And I think that yeah. you describe it doesn't matter what it would say. If there was a bill that Chuck Schumer and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump all did and that they all said, like, this is a bill that secures the border, helps the economy, and solves the illegal immigration problem. And you've said this too, Wade. It's yeah, like, no. It's like every—the the weirdness of immigration polling is it's like if you ask people, it's like, should we just do blanket amnesty for everybody? And and the public's Yay! like, sure. And then it's like, right. should we deport everybody? And they're like, let's also do that. Right, but at the, and but, so you know, like, at the same time, it's like— whatever you put in like, the stew, it's fine. They do want that, but they don't want it enough to actually lobby for it, right? Like, those are the people who yes. are never, ever, 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 ever naming immigration as the most important oh, sure. issue. But I'm just that. saying, if, you, if Trump did the deal— and then there yeah. would be there would be all these counterintuitive stories about how like Nixon went to China. Right. No, and, like, I think I think Trump the argument for doing now. the deal is that Trump would get like so much love from CNN and the you know the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and all of those outlets that he claims his Vox. approval he claims not to crave, but in fact craves very deeply. Like this president would be up to his ears in good press, and if. You know, he ever and that got was the, the case after that. Chuck and Nancy. And, right. Uh, he, he noticed it and he commented on it and was telling people a lot of the uh, after it happened that, oh, my God, like like yeah. the, the coverage I'm getting out of this is some of the best coverage I've ever gotten. And then he's sort of. That seemed like which, which maybe, you know, maybe this is the argument for keeping John Kelly is a post-John Kelly chief of staff is almost certainly going to wind back the, you know, let's control, let's make sure the president never sees any info wars or Breitbart clips. And a world in which Donald Trump, you know, is getting that everyone is sending him InfoWars and Breitbart clips is maybe a world in which he feels a little bit differently about getting good press from the New York Times and Washington Post and getting bad press from, you know, the places he personally would prefer to get his news. But I think I think one of the points that Matt was sort of making here is that, you know, people have views on policy issues sometimes that are a little vague, but there are a lot of people who just take their cues from the political leaders that, they trust. So if Donald Trump opposed an immigration deal that Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan somehow came up with together, uh, you know, that would be a signal to them that 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 deal was not tough enough. But if it, it could be the exact same deal that Donald Trump supported, and, and that would be the cue that that this is a good deal worth supporting. And, and so I, I think what we've never really seen tested you know, Trump really believes that he rose to the Republican nomination in large part because of the immigration issue. And and I think that's true. But, you know, things have changed since then. Now he's the most uh, beloved figure by the Republican base in the country, probably. And uh, it's he's he's the one who can 
have a lot of influence on how people think about this issue and whether he's willing to, you know, obviously there will be some people on on the right who will oppose any deal he cuts or, or sort of condemn him for supporting amnesty or whatever. But the question is how big that group will be. If, if he can bring along the vast majority of Republicans on some sort of deal, that I, I think it's certainly plausible that he could do that. The thing is that he hasn't really tried to do that. I think if Donald Trump is interested in that, it, it develops an interest in doing that. It's not going to happen before the November midterms. We've already seen White House sources saying that the president is not interested in policy anymore. He's going to find more excuses to, you know, like launch culture wars, that he sees the attacks on NFL players for kneeling during the national anthem as like the thing that he's going to keep doing. Um, so yeah, to be clear, maybe, there's no evidence that he wants Donald to Maybe Donald Trump this. will develop a spine. <laughs> I'm not going to hold my breath. I think we were just starting with Andrew's observation that Trump, somewhat unusually for a president, does not seem to be interested in doing popular consensus right. things. No, that's he, true. He is sometimes interested in things that he thinks like 51% of the public agrees with him on, but like he he wants to be fighting. And, you know, I, I think, as you say, it's like the the real centerpiece of the midterm campaign will be when NFL season starts in September. I, I would point out that the Bolsheviks called themselves the Bolsheviks to pre- present themselves as the majority and the Mensheviks as the minority, when in fact the alternative, the other thing was the case. It's kind of, that is the a similar strategy to Trump, is find situations in which you have a vocal minority supporting you and spend the rest of your time attacking the other side for being ostensibly the minority. All right. Well, with that, I think we should wrap up. Maybe next week we can we can do a deep dive into the history of the Russian Revolution. Um, we're going to do uh, t- Tuesday Weeds. It's going to be Infrastructure Week at long last. Um, talk about talk about all that stuff. Um, so thanks to, uh, to Andrew for, for joining us and to uh, our producer, Peter Leonard. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, enjoy, enjoy life and the weeds. <laughs> <laughs>